Welcome to Deep Dive MH370, episode 19, Debris Storm. Hello, everyone. I'm Andy Tarnoff, the publisher and founder of On Milwaukee, and I'm joined by MH370 raconteur, Jeff Wise. <laughs> going to keep using French since we're talking about Reunion Island. I love it. It makes us seem very sophisticated and, uh, you know, very well-traveled. Um, it's good to be back with you, Andy. I, I think we've got a great episode today. Uh, there's going to be some French involved. Just there is some French. Yeah. And there are also some other languages. So I, once again, we'll try not to butcher these these um, very specific languages, but I probably will. So apologies. We will try. We will advance. Last time we were talking about the first piece of debris, the flapperon, which turned out to, in fact, be the MH370 flapperon. But talked a lot about barnacles and marine life and how something seemed a little bit strange. And in fact, it gets more strange, Jeff. Yeah, as we as we constantly keep saying, it is a feature of this mystery that kind of every little corner of it that you poke your nose into, you'll you're, you're likely to find things that are strange. Yeah, so let's let's rewind to okay. uh, the end of the last episode. We were looking at like July 2015. Right. Flapperon was found, and then nothing else happened. Well, I mean, lots of other things happened, but in terms of debris, nothing else happened. Then all of a sudden, on February 28th, 2016, you receive an email from an independent researcher right. named Blaine Allen Gibson, right. who is a name that you have heard before. Yeah, he was part of the community. You know, as um, as I've also said before, I was running a website, jeffwise.net, which I still have. Um, but at the time, it was a buzz with people, you know, um, contributing, offering suggestions, offering ideas. I, as I would kind of do my research, I would post my results. And then in the comment section, people would pitch in. Um, people would sometimes email me directly. And um, one of the people who crossed my radar was this guy named Blaine Allen Gibson. Another commenter um, had pointed him out to me. She had said, oh, there's this guy who is going, uh, he's, he's in the area of the Indian Ocean and he's going to the Maldives and he's interviewing these villagers uh, who some other people had said that they saw a plane fly overhead on the morning of March 8th. And they said it was, it had a white, uh, red and blue livery, which MS370 right. did. Um, and so there was a certain amount of excitement in a certain quarter, I would say, of the MH370 investigation community, people who thought this was really interesting. Now, I would point out, though, that it was kind of a fringe for the simple reason that this area of the Maldives is not near any of the ping arcs. And okay. so in order to think that this plane might have been MH370, you would have to sort of believe that the Marsat data was fake. Okay, Which so let's read did, this. But... Yeah, 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 yeah. So let's let's read this email from him and then okay. you know kind of break it down. Sure. Okay, so I'm just going to read it. Dear Jeff, okay. please read my post in the Longest Journey, a members-only Facebook discussion group about the debris my friend and I found in Mozambique. I will be attending the two-year commemoration in Kuala Lumpur, March 6. I still hope you and I can meet in person to discuss MH370. I am increasingly doubtful about the validity of the Inmarsat data and its interpolation. Interpretation, right. interpretation. Best wishes, right. Blaine Gibson. Right. Okay. That that that's an interesting email because it's very polite. It's got some of its own weirdness in it. But <laughs> let, let's talk about it. Yeah. So this was his. Um, I so we had I guess had some um, you know exchange of 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 pleasantries before, but but basically what he directed me to was a 
a, a sort of members only restricted access Facebook page where he had posted pictures of this piece that he had found because he had taken it upon himself to see if he could find more pieces of debris. Now to provide you some historical context, as you mentioned earlier, a piece had been discovered in July of 2015, but nothing else showed up for half of a half year or more. And so people were starting to wonder, well, this is a little strange. I mean, we had no evidence apart from the Inmarsat data. Then this one piece shows up and it's an incredible piece. It's got like, um, you know, it even has um, serial numbers inside it that we can dem we can prove that this came from the plane, but then nothing else washes up. So Blaine had taken it upon himself to go see if he could find more pieces. And he okay. had talked. Yeah. Yeah. So let's break this down a little bit, okay. right? This, sure. this guy, so he calls himself an independent researcher. In right. fact, um, he's also calls himself a retired Seattle lawyer on a self-financed right. trip. Right. And this is, this part's a little strange to me, but I think it, it's, it's worth mentioning. Um, one of the reasons he was there is he had convinced himself that perhaps MH370 was on a suicide mission to Diego Garcia. And for you, that was one of those things that immediately kind of set him into that fringe area. I've heard that theory about Diego Garcia. I think it bears just a tiny bit of mentioning because a lot of people think it's a thing. It's just, it's like a secret military base, but it's not anywhere in, in the, the agreed upon flight path of MH370. Right. So earlier we were saying that he had gone to the Maldives and that's why I was first aware of him. The reason he went to the Maldives because people had um, reported that these villagers had seen it fly overhead. That had fed into speculation that somehow this British American base in the middle of the Indian Ocean called Diego Garcia might have played a role. Um, specifically, one of the ideas that was bouncing around a lot was the idea that um, maybe the pilot or some hijackers had taken the plane and they were on a suicide mission to try to crash it sort of 9-11 style into this base. And then the Americans shot it down in defense and self-defense. Okay. This there's, there's really no basis for this. There's no evidence for this. However, you know, you talk about the American military, the British military, um, in Marsat was tied into the department of defense as well. It, it was, these are, um, sort of very popular themes for conspiracy theorists, right? So there's a lot of people who say, well, the, you know, the powers that be, uh, must be involved in this. They probably cover everything up. They probably fake the Inmarsat data. And, and, and this obviously is far removed from the mainstream of MH370 investigation. And I would point out that like, I, I have been criticized as someone whose ideas are beyond the pale or I am outside the mainstream, but I hew mm. much closer to the mainstream than some of these ideas. Now, so Blaine, now here's a, you asked if this is why he was looking in this area. Actually, no. There's a bit of a contradiction here. Blaine is a complicated figure. You'll be hearing his name more, so I might as well get that right up front and center. Okay. He's a complicated guy. The reason he went to this part of Africa to look for the debris was not because of anything to do with Diego Garcia. He went there because he went to ask an Australian oceanographer who was working with the authorities to try to understand where this piece must have gone. So he, so his, his, even though he entertained some conspiracy theories, some even wilder than the Diego Garcia idea. Um, nonetheless, the reason he went to this area was actually well-grounded in 
the official search. We've been, we've talked in previous episodes about drift modeling. Um, th these oceanographers had been looking at for a long time how currents move, where a plane that crashed on the seventh arc, where its debris might have wound up. And so actually his, his reason for looking there was really solid. Now, why he said in this email to me that he doubted the uh, Inmarsat data, I do not know. But that was kind of just something that he threw in there. Okay. So in fact, he did talk to someone at the TSB, um, yeah. uh, Charitha Pet Petriarchi, an Australian okay. oceanographer. And uh, they said, yeah, go to the coast of Mozambique. So, uh, you know, you mentioned this guy was very well-spoken and kind of charming, which I suppose would explain why someone from the ATSB would just tell some guy, go take a look in Mozambique. I mean, I feel like if I called them up, they wouldn't really reply to me and say, go check this place out. I mean, not necessarily. I mean, this, I wound up talking to a lot of people at the ATSB. Um, I talked to David Griffin at CSIRO, which was the um, scientific uh, research agency that the Australian government um, got involved. And and people will answer questions and if okay. you're nice to them. And, and Blaine is a, is a very um, friendly, unassuming, charming guy. And so I, I'm not, it doesn't surprise me that, that somebody took his call. Okay. Well, before we talk about the actual uh, debris stuff, and there's a lot of it, I just have right. to point out one more thing about yeah. Blaine Gibson, because this one... I put a star next to this in my sure. notes. Um, he had previously posted on Facebook about this shadowy meeting he had uh, in a remote corner of Vietnam two months before MH370 disappeared. He says that an unidentified arms broker had produced a mysterious Soviet chemical warfare agent, like uh, some little glass bottle that when he put one drop of it, it melted a plastic water bottle. Mm. And the locals had called this stuff, uh, quote, water dissolves metal. And he was proposing that the MH370 hijackers uh, kind of made a mistake. They were attempting to uh, disintegrate the cockpit door, but accidentally wound up depressurizing the plane, thus causing the hypoxic ghost flight. That sounds kind of cuckoo bananas to me. Um, <laughs> it was an idea that I had never heard before, and I didn't hear it again. Um, and it did sound a little out there. I mean, the idea that there was this mysterious substance um, by itself is kind of uh, unusual. But then the idea that like the entire unraveling of this mystery could be traced back to this mysterious Cold War substance that dissolved metal and a whole scenario about the door being melted, but then the, the cabin melting and depressurizing and all this. It just it sounded pretty far out there. And so. Yeah, this, Blaine had, I had become aware of that before Blaine emailed me about this piece okay. that he had found. Um, and so, but yeah, so so when I got this initial email f from Blaine about this piece that he discovered, um, I was, I had sort of mentally categorized him as a bit of a far, uh, far off kind of fringe character. Okay. All right. So let's get into the actual pieces of debris but very briefly okay. uh we would like it's time for the interstitial and okay. we'd like to to welcome our, our first sponsor of deep That's dive mh370 anything for you Episode 19 is brought to you by Seattle Tacoma singer-songwriter Jacob John. In fact, we're listening to his song Speedboat right now. 
He, he asked if his commercial could be funny. I said, yeah, totally, because even though this is a serious podcast, I can't help but try to be funny, so we might as well go with it. Uh, if you're listening to this right now, you can tell that, as Jacob said, this music is for fans of Death Cab for Cutie and, quote, other shitty bands like that. Personally, I don't think it's shitty at all. I think it sounds like kind of like early cake and maybe a little bit of Michael Penn. A little Matthew Sweet in there? I think it's just really good. Jacob describes himself as a city bus driver who hates his job, and he's hoping that he can buy enough ads to get himself out of hell. And I think this is definitely a good start. Uh, he became obsessed with this case when it happened, and he says he even has a song in the works about MH370, which I would love to hear that. He says that to everyone who is still wondering what happened, it was the Russians. So... Uh, you can stream his new EP, which is called Folly. Jacob John is on Spotify, Apple Music, and all the other streaming platforms, just like episode 19 of Deep Dive MH370. Thank you, Jacob, for sponsoring our podcast. Wow, that's very cool, Jacob. Thank you. Thanks for supporting us. That really means a lot. That's very great. We're going to have more from Jacob, too. He's, uh, he's written some music. We're going to save that for another episode. Awesome. It's pretty awesome, though. Great. Okay, so back to the podcast. Uh, so Blaine, in this February email, tells you about this piece that he found, and uh, he took pictures of a triangular slab of composite something with a honeycomb right. interior and a note saying that the piece he found the previous day on an island sandbar near the town of Vilanculo had the words no step on it. Right. So he had, as we said, he talked to this oceanographer. Oceanographer said, go to this part of the world. He went to this part of the world. Um, and I guess he looked at the beach there. He didn't see anything. So he said to the local fisherman, where's a good place to go if I want to find something washing ashore? And they said, oh, there's the sandbar. Uh, we'll take you there if you want. So he hired the fisherman to take him to the sandbar. He got to the sandbar. And by his account, within 20 minutes, he had found this piece or somebody else had found it and handed it to him. Um, and so when I heard that, I was like, really? 20 minutes? Because remember, yeah. it's it had been, you know, in the up to this point, it's been now almost two years and only one piece in the entire Indian Ocean has washed up. So the fact that he went and within 20 minutes found something is, is which struck me as remarkable. Um, it also struck me as remarkable the way that he chose to uh, unveil this information. So he did it on this private Facebook site. He invited yeah. me and some other people to look at it, but he swore us to secrecy. He said, you can't tell anyone about this until I give you permission, which yeah. kind of rubbed me the wrong way because I'm a journalist. If you come with me with information, now it is a thing that people do where they say, I want to tell you something, but it's, it's, yeah, it's off, know, the background, yeah, off the record. Background, off the record. I don't like that. Um, None it, of us it, do. It, and, and, and also it's like, why? I mean, you've, you, you found this, this, this piece that could be groundbreaking, world-changing. I mean, this is a mystery that the entire world is obsessed with, and you have just done this impossible thing. You've, you've gone out and you've deliberately found a piece of debris, and why, are you not, why do you not want me to talk about it? But eventually it does come out. It leaks out. Um, and this piece is confirmed as coming from MH370. Um, it, the word no step, I guess, is in, the, in, is in the right font and like made with the right dye or whatever that it matches MH370. And so it is confirmed that, that Blaine Allen Gibson has performed the incredible feat of going out and deliberately finding some of this debris. And now suddenly this guy is like all, you know, all over the world. He's just like 
in every every media story there is. And in fact, you were one of the first people who had a chance to interview him. You talked to him for New York Magazine for about, what, 30 minutes? And yeah. um, you said he was he was a pretty good interview. Yeah, I mean, he's well-spoken. Um, he's coherent. He has a fascinating story to tell. He was eager to tell me about his background and, and, and a little bit about himself. And um, so, yeah, I ran it in New York Magazine. And uh, it, you know, he went on to be really not only sort of world famous, but almost like Mr. MH370. I mean, people used to say that mayor, that Rudy Giuliani was the mayor of 9-11. Yeah, um, this guy. Blaine Allen Gibson is kind of the mayor of of MH370 um, because, and we'll we'll get more, we'll hear more about this in future episodes, but he becomes tightly, he, he becomes central really to the story of MH370 itself. And he finds, he winds up finding most of the pieces of debris that are collected. But not only is he finding, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not only is he finding these things. Now it's like the floodgates have opened. Um, the next one I see is on March 11th, a South African teenager Liam Loter finds a piece with a, a stenciled code on it that says six seven six EB, and that's a right hand outboard flap fairing from a Boeing triple seven. Um, well, he had actually found no. it back in December, and he didn't know what it was. He was on right. vacation with his family, and. Um, he took it home back to South Africa, where he was from, and he kept it. And then he saw news reports about Blaine, and he's like, wait a minute, that kind of looks like this. And he had it checked out. And indeed, it was, as you say, this flap, this, um, this fairing. Right, right. And, um, and so, so, so what this shows is that Blaine's discovery um, and then his promotion of that discovery really changed the mystery because now people were, were like, oh, that's what you do. That's where you find it. That's what these pieces look like. So pieces that had been previously discovered were now being aired to the public. And and in, also people were looking in a new way. Yeah. And indeed the next one, this one kind of blows me away because uh, a guy just strolling on the beach in uh, Mossel Bay in South Africa, he finds a piece of engine cowling that, I mean, even just by looking at, it, I can tell what this is the Rolls Royce logo. This is the, right. the piece of the engine, but his his story is kind of weird, right? Because um, that was the second. Was that the second guy who found it? The first one was a retired doctor. Is it, it the is same? A, it's the same same guy who found the same piece. How'd the whole work? story is strange. So, in the wake of Blaine Gibson and then um, this South African teenager, now everyone's out, got their eyeballs out. This guy is walking um, along the shore in a place called Mossel Bay, South Africa. And he sees this piece, he collects it, it becomes famous. It's like locally famous. And then the local news is picked up, it becomes internationally famous. And, the, 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 and then there's another twist, which is that a local doctor, a retired doctor in the, in the Mossel Bay area, saw the news coverage and said, wait a minute, that looks I, familiar. I saw that. Yeah, I saw that. In fact, I not only saw it, but I was walking back in December around the time that um, Liam Lauder had found his piece, uh, he he was walking on the beach on the sort of tidal flats, I guess, and he saw this piece lying there on the sand with nothing nearby. And he is an amateur photographer or whatever. He had a camera and he took the picture and he kept it. He didn't really, it was just this weird looking thing. And when, so those photos got published and in, yes, indeed, it was the same piece. It had part of the Rolls Royce logo on it. The, they call it the Roy piece because it was the ROY part of Rolls yeah. Royce. And 
it's the same piece, but three months earlier, it must have just washed up out of the ocean and it was covered in all these barnacles. Again, barnacles about the same size as was seen on um, the, the one at La Réunion. Yeah. So uh, obviously this thing has been out in the ocean. It's washed ashore. And like we talked earlier about how these, these critters are very tasty for crabs and seagulls and other scavengers. So it must have washed ashore. The, the barnacles died. It got picked clean. And then it must have sort of got washed in and out and maybe got the tide took it up the river or something somehow for three months it stayed in this area and you might think it got washed out to sea and it would wind up back in the middle of the who knows anywhere pacific atlantic anywhere but um so this is an incredible story i actually reached out to this doctor because i'm like what is this really is this real because it sounds yeah, like such no a great story. and it really it literally was he's just like a retired guy who had no idea like that he was going to play a part in this international story yeah he didn't want to touch it because it was smelly I mean, which, you know, all these yeah, rotting so, muscles all over it. So he just took a picture and then but the, went. But the fact that these, these, that these barnacles at this point were completely intact, hadn't been scavenged, were, were, were dead and enough that they were starting to rot. So that, could, that lets you kind of pinpoint fairly precisely the moment that this thing had come ashore. Right. Um, so it was December of 2015. The next one, this one I think is also extremely interesting because it's different than the other one. So a week after the Mossel Bay piece was turned in, a vacationing couple um, on a different island. These right. are the guys who were vacationing, the La Reunion people who <laughs> they were went from to another... La Reunion. Okay, and they were vacationing on uh, a nearby island, Rodriguez Island, Rodriguez perhaps. Island, and they found a chunk of an interior cabin panel. Right. That is very significant because unlike these other pieces, which are exterior pieces, this was the first interior piece. And that yeah. talks that that kind of uh, speaks to possibly how the plane might have crashed. You want to go into right. a little detail on that? Yeah, no, this is extremely potentially important because we've talked about how based on the BFO data, investigators concluded that when last seen at the seventh arc, this plane was in a steep and accelerating dive to the point that it was basically vertically heading down towards the ocean. And if that, that dive was carried to its inevitable conclusion, you would have thousands of pieces scattered across the ocean. And indeed the investigators uh, figured that, that there must be thousands of pieces. Um, but the problem with that is you would expect to find the wreckage of the plane, the main fuselage, right there, right close to the seventh arc, an area that had been extensively searched. So this was the so in, in so to in order to answer the question, why isn't it there? Some people had proposed that after this dive, the plane had been pulled into a shallower descent and was able to glide far beyond the parameters of the search area. And so then their idea was that, well, maybe this guy decided he wanted to gently ditch. Um, if the plane had gently ditched, you wouldn't, and like sort of like Sully did on the Hudson, right. nothing, when, when Sully ditched on the Hudson, all of those, all the interior panels of the plane were intact. The entire fuselage yep. was intact on the inside. So this would indicate that no, this plane did not ditch gently. That whole scenario was off the table. 
Now you're still left with the possibility that maybe he dove, glided, and then dove again so that he broke it up. But then now you're now you're talking about a really kind of complicated and complex scenario just in order to fit what we've observed. Well, what I like about what we are now starting to learn from these pieces is these scientists and oceanographers can start putting these pieces back together again, so to speak. So you've got you know right. David Griffin from CISRO, the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization, and they start using computer simulations of how the debris might have traveled over time. This is not something that they just started doing. They right. ran simulations thousands of times to show all the different tracks that the Flabberon might have taken if it had come from the seventh arc. Right. And, you know, it was possible that they could have reached La Reunion. Right. Um, and now we have the opportunity to look at these other pieces and see how did they get there. Every piece that you find is another piece of data. And then what you can glean from that data is the job of a scientist to try to figure out, you know, what, what can they learn? How can we look at it, this? And one of the main answers that they came up with is, well, it's, let's use this te technique called reverse drift modeling. Now, we've talked about drift modeling where if you have an idea of how currents flow um, and, and you can get that information by one of the things that they do is put drifters uh, into the water. And these drifters can, can, will travel in the ocean currents all around. They'll sort of travel sort of as we've talked about randomly to a certain extent, but also to a certain extent, they will sort of let us learn what the predominant currents are. And these things are sending out radio signals. So they're sort of transmitting their location. So you can get a lot of data about how do currents move in this part of the world. And so if you um, imagine um, an area of the ocean at a certain time and you use your modeling to project how a universe of particles um, will will sort of waft across the ocean. In, and, and it's like, you can imagine putting a uh, drop of dye into your bathtub, right? Mm -hmm. It will start out in one spot, but then the random motion of the particles will, it'll basically spread out. And if you're swirling the bathtub with your hand, as the dye is spreading outwards, it will also kind of tend to spread into a certain direction as yeah. well. And so you can do that forward in time and you can also do it backwards in time. And you can say, well, if a particle is at point B at such and such a time and we, we wind the clock backwards six months or a year or a year and a half, and what's the, what, what are the, you can sort of generate another probability heat map like we did earlier with the BTO data in order to say, okay, what's the kind of universe of likelihood uh, of where it came from? And so in order to do that, you need to know how these pieces float because pieces that float high in the water get pushed by the wind and those that float more or less submerged do not get affected by the wind. So without getting into a ton, a ton of detail, okay. although we can, sure. uh, I, I love the fact that the CISRO scientists built these like six replicas and we, you know, we have these pictures that we can put up screen, they, on right. screen, they kind of... I don't know, they look like pallets, sort of. <laughs> uh, and then they, so they yeah. made them, and then they fed them back into the model. Right. And well, they threw them in the water. They threw them in the water off the coast they, of Tasmania. They, they, right. And said, Poof, they, go. And they said, let's see what happens. And they would, and they did this under various kinds of meteorological conditions to see if the wind is strong, if the wind is not so strong. How does it float compared to your standard drifter? And so once they, once they said, okay, if the wind is doing X, then this, then this, um, these simulated flaperons will will move in such a way that's different 
And so then they could plug that into their flapper on other uh, drifter data and generate a kind of probability distribution of where these pieces would drift to. And this was a, a really great idea, but it didn't quite work. Yeah, all the all their models wind up with the flapper on floating far north of Reunion Island. Yeah, so they were they, <laughs> they know, were kind like, of flummoxed. Hmm, yeah, maybe maybe we need to do you know make a better model. I mean, to be clear, they were a hundred percent certain that the plane had landed, had somehow been at the seventh arc, um, and it was close to crashing. So they knew that the debris must be coming from this part of the eastern southeastern Indian Ocean, I guess you could say. And so when they couldn't get their drift models to work, they thought we're we're doing something wrong. We, our model, our data from the from our our um, synthetic flaperons must be bad. And so, yeah, we, need, so we need a more realistic flaperon, basically. Which this amazes me, but somehow they obtained a real piece of, or a real Boeing 777 flaperon. I have no idea how they did that. And oh, well. Did, the, the, do you know? the Americans came to the rescue. The, their American counterpart, the NTSB, um, had a flap, somehow got their hands on a flaperon and gave it to them. And they took okay. it and they, um, in order to make it behave like the flap run that wound up on, on La Réunion, they chopped it up, cut it up, um, sawed it to make it sort of fit the general uh, shape uh, so that it would react to the wind and it would float similarly to the real flap run, which, which, by the way, the French still had at their um, laboratory in Toulouse. Uh, okay. Well, it worked. Uh, it did float much like the original. Yeah. I think um... we have a picture that we can put up of comparing the um, early replicas to the to the actual uh, real one. And you can see that they look and and float quite differently. Yeah, tell me about this. You said that there's one thing, one striking thing to notice about the real flapper on its trailing edge sticks way out of the water. Right. So the minute I heard that the Australians had done this, um, and before I'd seen pictures of it, I got extremely interested because as, we, as we've talked about um, in a previous episode, Lepus barnacles live underwater. They, their, their lifestyle is to dangle into the water and filter to, um, stuff that filters past them, that drifts past them, and they filter it out using these sort of um, these. They're actually a, a derived from their feet, and they sort of sweep up the debris. Um, this only can happen underwater, and if they if yeah. they stay out of the water too long, they dry up and die. So. Um, I was really intrigued to see pictures of this flap run floating because yes, the entire, almost all of the trailing edge is sticking up out of the water. And and they posted pictures eventually where it was, the, the, the flap run was kind of unstable when it floated. It liked to okay. float either right side up or upside down. And apparently it didn't take much wave action to flip it around. And so the idea was, so when people were thinking about, well, how is it that there's barnacles growing all over this piece? Um, maybe it was being constantly flipped over so that if a barnacle was high and dry and unhappy, it just had to wait a little while and it would be underwater and happy again long enough that it would continue to grow. But looking at these pictures that the ATSB eventually published, there's parts of this flapper on that never are underwater. Um, and maybe a, like an occasional wave will pass by and sort of inundate them. But it seems like this is a really puzzling aspect of this, of this piece that how is it, again, this, we, we spent a lot of an earlier episode talking about the mystery of, of how is it that this whole thing could be 
um, covered in barnacles. And again, this is not just me going off, but the, the French themselves were really puzzled by this enough that when they did their own drift modeling, they did it in two ways. One when the, with the thing totally submerged and one um, floating uh, high uh, up in the, up in the air. Yeah. So this was, this was a, a real issue, but nonetheless, the ATSB was like, all right, we're good. And <laughs> they just, they were not interested. Well, the thing, Andy, that, that you and I have talked about is that they had this flapper on and it was already wired with telemetry. It was wired with like radio transmitters. So they could know where it was. They could get data from it any, at any time. They could have just left it in the ocean after their trials and, and just see how it floats, see how it goes. I mean, they could have put it at the seventh arc and see where it went. And they also could have just left it in the water and see how do lepus barnacles grow in it or what grows on it. And you could have tried to match it with what was found in La Réunion, but they just were not interested in this question at all. And they didn't. It was a real another, missed opportunity. For yeah, another, another thing that they couldn't explain was how that piece of engine cowling had managed to float all the way to the southern tip of South Africa by December 2015. Yeah. yeah. There was kind of an irony here because they spent so much time and effort trying to make the flapper on match their drift models that when the other pieces of data came in they were a little bit flummoxed again to find out that they didn't really match in particular this mossel bay piece the roy piece um having perfected the model with a flapper on when you put this mossel bay piece into it it's really hard to see how it could get anywhere near Mossel Bay. Mossel Bay is in like the southern area of southern Africa. So it's sort of near the tip of, of the African continent. And the way generally the pattern of how things float is if you're sort of near uh, the seventh arc in this part of area of the, of the Indian Ocean near closer to Australia in the eastern part, the current will take it sort of northish and then west. And it'll go west towards in the general direction of Madagascar. It'll, it'll come ashore uh, on mainland Africa to the west of Madagascar, and then it will be carried by um, shore currents southward. And so the last place in all of the Indian Ocean Basin you would expect to find this stuff is in the southern tip of South Africa. And yet it's showing up there just mere months after it is uh, turning up in La Réunion. And the, and and they, yeah. they really, they, they knew this. And they and, and Victor Ianello actually, who's, whose name we've invoked many times on this podcast, actually brought it up directly yeah so what the hell i mean like why why is everyone like content with well so they just does, including victor like why is everyone just like meh well they they listen i mean no matter which end of this um debate you're on there's things about this case that you can't really explain and so it, it, it's a mark of an honest investigator that they admit what they don't know and so, so Victor was raising these questions. David Griffin of CSIRO reached out to him and said, um, you are correct that Roy was found at an earlier date than the model predicted. And then he's, and this is his explanation. He says, to be fair, the model error is just two months. I consider Roy's arrival time before anything else upstream to be something that is simply too hard for any present day model to convincingly explain. Um, and then he kind of goes on and, and says that, um, you know, you can't, you can't interpret these things too, too literally. Um, we don't really have huge confidence in our model's ability to hindcast the arrival times. Um, 
And so, you know, he's like, basically, I don't know. <laughs> he's saying, I yeah. don't know. Still know. Um, but our model is imperfect. We things, I mean, again, uh, when you're dealing with, with probabilistic events, unusual things can happen. And so sometimes the question becomes this odd thing that I, that I've detected, is it a signal of something that I need to pay attention to, or is it just a byproduct of noise? Okay. And we're going to see that again and again, again. I mean, as, as I I said with this, the, the heat, the density heat map of where the plane should be on the Southern seabed, Again, it's like they they said there's a 98.7 or 99%, whatever you want, probability that we should have found it and we didn't. Were we just unlucky or are we getting this wrong? And so the question basically that Victor was putting to CSIRO directly or indirectly was, are you unlucky or are you getting it wrong? Because your model does not predict this happening. All right. Well, I... All right, I'm going to try to just wrap this into one kind of overall statement, and then you can help me understand some of this latitude stuff. Because the ATSB is making these very confident public pronouncements. You're saying this stuff is more problematic and baffling. And the thing is that the investigators had developed these multiple lines of inquiry where the plane could have gone, but they don't converge, right? So if you choose any spot on the seventh arc, there's a bunch of different reasons to expect that the plane hadn't gone there. So specifically right. we got south of 39.5 degrees south was ruled out because the plane couldn't fly that far. Right. That sounds easy. Yeah. Um, 36 degrees south to 39.5 degrees south was ruled out because it had already been searched. It had already been searched and also pieces um, that had would have started further in the southern part of the search area should have been in an area of the ocean where the predominant currents were to the east. And so the pieces would have washed up in Australia. And as we've talked about before, Australians, the Australian public was looking hard for pieces. And they were doing these annual beach cleanups and just everybody. And pieces have been found in Australia, but then they turned out not to be from MH370. Right. So, so the, the expectation is that if this plane hit the water hard, created thousands of pieces of floating debris, many of them would have wind up would have wound up on Australian shores, and a significant proportion of those would have been found. So, the fact that none of that happened meant that the plane could not have gone too far south on the seventh arc. Okay, so that the debris drift modeling ruled out thirty four degrees south to thirty six degrees south. Well, no, thirty four to thirty six actually is kind of the sweet spot. Right around thirty five, they thought this is where the plane should be if we're going to get it the flapper on to to La Reunion okay. on time. However, okay. and we spent a lot of time demonstrating to ourselves that that's possible. However, the stop, the Mossel Bay part doesn't right. match at all, and so we can't really explain that. Um, also, this area has been searched to um, a pretty wide air latitude. I mean, sorry, I shouldn't say latitude, to a pretty wide width right. away from the seventh arc, and it's not there. So that's problematic. Yeah, and anywhere north of 34 degrees south had the surface search right after the plane disappeared. Kind of yeah, ruled that out. Especially, as well. especially to about 32 degrees 
Um, it had been searched extensively from the air. And remember, we, we talked about Air France 447, another plane that disappeared over the open ocean. When they started searching for that, they were success they wound up finding hundreds of pieces. And so you can see this stuff from the air if you're looking. So the fact that it wasn't discovered was interpreted by the ATSB to, ma to mean that it probably wasn't there. And again, we're talking probabilistically. There's always the the possibility that just they weren't very good at looking or, or something. Yeah. Well, I mean, the fact remains that now they have all these pieces and none of the none of the scientific modeling really leads to anything that we feel, or at least that, that you feel good about saying this is actually what happened. So again, you know, kind of the underlying structure of this podcast, Andy, is this idea that there's a, a mainstream uh, sort of consensus theory of what happened to the plane, that it was hijacked by the pilot and flown south, but that I'd pointed out that there's a potential other track that might have happened, which is that the plane was hijacked and taken north. If, if that is the case, then all of this debris that's turning up must actually have been taken from the plane and put in the ocean sort of as a way to cover the perpetrator's tracks. And so the fact that none of this drift modeling really matches up in a coherent way and that the plane isn't on the seabed in the area where it should be should have been coming from anyway. These two things together seem to me to suggest that perhaps this, this would be evidence increasing the probability of the second scenario, the idea that this is all cooked. But I'm sorry, you're going to say something. No, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm annoyed because it felt like, you know, things were starting to make sense a little bit. And this episode shows that things don't make any sense. It's, I mean, they, yes, they reinforce where we're going with it, but this, I feel like the ATSB made some pretty half-assed conclusions based on everything that they had in front of them. The dynamic that I see playing out here again is that if you want a simple story to be true, namely the pilot suicide, then it's important to not to look too carefully at the evidence. <laughs> right. Um, if you start looking carefully at the evidence, it doesn't match up. Um, in a simple story, and I do a lot of stories as a journalist, I do different kinds of stories. And in a simple story, every piece of evidence that you gather, you know, it's like pieces of a puzzle that all match up. They all fit together. And so, you know, I'm making, I'm making the right puzzle. If you've got a jigsaw puzzle where the pieces don't fit together, you're like, am I even, am I really even making a real jigsaw or is this just a bunch of random pieces? I could see how it would feel that way for sure. <laughs> um, and yeah. so it's encouraging when people at least say, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense as Victor did um, to CSIRO and said, how do you explain this piece getting a muscle bay? It doesn't match your drift modeling at all. Um, at least people are aware that there are problems. This is actually starting to get pretty timely because as we're filming this, we're getting closer and closer to the 10th anniversary yeah. of the disappearance of MH370. So maybe you can tell by listening or watching this podcast that we're really getting into the meat of things and, and the pace is even going to pick up as, as we get closer to the current time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, this plane flew for um, you know seven hours after it, it disappeared from radar, but the evidence kept accumulating over the years that followed. And the analysis and 
the revelations that were made continue to occur and they continue to occur to the say this is a live case this is not a cold case this is not something we're hauling out of the vault this is happening now and the and as as we progress we're going to continue to lay some crazy stuff on the on the listeners and viewers and you're going to see that this is actually very relevant this case is actually very important this is not a one off historical event this is something that is important today for this, not only for the safety of the public, but for the safety of the world, really. Yeah. Okay. Well, episode 20 will be coming at you next week. And I, you're, you're promising me that it's going to be, it's going to be even more cuckoo bananas. This is, well, th we have some really important stuff that we want to lay on you guys between now and the anniversary. It, the, the, we're going to take it up a notch. Um, what I want to talk about next week is more about this debris. More pieces are coming in, more puzzles are emerging. Um, and again, there's puzzlement if you look too closely. And so people who want it to be nice and tied up and, 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 and tied up with a bow are going to be disappointed, but there's, but it's, it's going to be intriguing. Okay. Somewhat All right. Okay. All right. Well, you know. I, I tell everybody that they should be liking and subscribing. And there's yes. a reason for that because we've now cr crossed a certain threshold with YouTube where we're an official partner with them and uh, all of the support from our readers and viewers and listeners is actually mattering. So please continue to do that. Please continue to, to, to post comments because we're reading them and we're replying to them. We have our first sponsor, Jacob, whose song is very cool and I am enjoying his music. Uh, this thing is this thing is taking off. I use another airplane pun. <laughs> Sorry about that. It's okay. It's an occupational hazard. I didn't um, mean to do it. Yeah, it's forgiven. It's forgiven. Um, yeah. Well, thank you, Andy. Uh, you work really hard on this podcast. I appreciate your efforts. And thank you, Jacob. It's really great. He st he stepped forward and he uh, put his money where his mouth is and and is supporting us uh, with his with his music and uh, and with his his ad placement, which is our first ad. Yeah. Which is like I feel like. I'm I, I'm like getting my driver's license for the first time or something. It's a big deal. It's a big it's deal. It's a big deal. It's a All right. We'll be back at you guys next week with episode 20. You've been listening to Deep Dive MH370, the video and audio and web podcast. We're having a great time. We'll see you next week. Okay. Thanks, guys. Bye, Andy. Bye.